So what is the most valuable thing that you personally own? You know, for most people, it's probably their home, although do most of us really own our home? You know, the auto draw from our bank account that happens each month to our lender indicates otherwise. Uh, we don't own it, at least not yet. Uh, so what is the most valuable thing that you own? Maybe it's a car, uh, maybe it's jewelry, maybe it's a baseball card. Uh, no, seriously, a baseball card. You know, the, 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 a T206 Honus Wagner baseball card last sold for $3.1 million for a piece of cardboard about that big. Um, but I'd wager that none of you probably have one of those lying around in a shoebox somewhere, but you never know. But let me ask the question another way. Instead of asking what is the most valuable thing that you own, let me ask you this instead. What do you value most? Because it's a completely different question. It takes on a whole new meaning because now it's become personal to you. What is the most valuable takes into account what the rest of society, what the rest of the world thinks, what they have deemed valuable. But what you value is a completely different story. Aside from our children, I know that my wife Melissa's answer would be her photographs. Um, and for those of you who know Melissa, you know there's little doubt here that that is really uh, what she values highly because they're memories and it really, they're attached to our family. But like everyone else, we've got photo albums that go back a long way with memories of the past. But on her computer, uh, she has over, ready for this? Over 200,000 photos that we have taken since we got married. And that's actually not since we got married, that's since really digital photography became a thing, but 200,000 photos. How do I know she values these most? Well, it's really easy. It's the one thing I know she'd try to save if our house were, were on fire and the kids were safe. If the house is burning down, she already knows the kids are safe, those are what is getting saved. And that's what determines value, isn't it? I mean, what we're willing to give up for it, what we're willing to sacrifice for it, um, if her hard drive crashed and we didn't have a local backup and we didn't have an online backup, which we do, we have both, uh, I don't think there's a price that would be too high for her to pay to attempt to have that hard drive restored, to be brought back to the condition that it's supposed to be in. Why? Because it's valuable to her, extremely so. We don't only protect things that we value, we're willing to go to great lengths to see them restored. And that's kind of the thought that I want you to, to linger on today. We don't only protect things that we value, we're willing to go to great things to restore them. So think about your life for a second. What do you value most? What you value determines how you will act. It determines the decisions you will make. It determines your priorities in life. It determines uh, what you will give up. It determines where your sacrifices will go, what gets prioritized. It helps to shape your life, what you value. That's why we have values uh, as a church. You know, things that guide us and move us forward and help us in our decision-making process. It determines how we spend our money. It determines the ministries that we will take on. It determines how we ask people to volunteer and serve and, and what our programming looks like. Those values of new stories, strong families, healthy relationships, and an outward focus help us to in, guide us in determining what is important to us 
as we move forward as a church. And there's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15 about a son. He's known as the prodigal son. One of the most famous, if not the most famous parable that Jesus tells. Probably the prodigal son and the good Samaritan are probably the two most famous parables that Jesus tells. And we call someone a prodigal if they've left, if they've walked away, if they've, they've you know, moved off the path. We, that's what we call someone a prodigal. If they've wandered away from the path that they're supposed to be on. But that's really, that's because of this story. If, if you look up, uh, the, the story talks about the fact that he ran away from home, and that's why. But the meaning of prodigal, if you look that up, it's spending money for resources wastefully and extravagantly. That's what prodigal really means. And that could be a, a, a new revelation for some of you, that the word prodigal actually means spending money for resources wastefully and extravagantly. And based on what we just talked about, he ran away because of what he valued, of what was important to him. That's why he left. He valued possessions over people. He valued what he could get from his relationships over the relationships themselves. He ran and it cost him and it cost him everything. And the story begins with this son going to his father and demanding his share of the inheritance now. His father was healthy. His father was still very much alive. And he goes to his father and says, I want what's coming to me. I want my share of the inheritance now. I'm going to leave. He doesn't want to wait for his dad to die. He wants to get what is coming to him now. And his dad gives him what he asks for and lets him walk. And this is what happens next. Let's look at the story. We'll pick it up in Luke 15. We're going to read verses 13 to 24. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Now, the story doesn't start off too well, does it? The son had left. He was gone, abandoned, rejected his family, took what, 
You know, he felt he had coming to him and just walked. He had rejected life with his father, decided to live without his father's protection, provision, love, and guidance. He was on his own. But the story didn't end there. This is a story about coming home. This is a story about redemption. This is a story about what is lost being restored. Because the focus of everything that happens here in this story, which Jesus told, is right here in this coming home moment. It's in the reunion between the son and his father. That's the point of this parable. And as we continue our deeper look into the parables of Jesus, if we're going to understand why the son was able to come home, we've got to understand these biblical principles of restoration and redemption. And in the biblical sense, to redeem something meant to set free from a life of bondage. Something is in bondage and it is being set free. Those chains are being taken off. And if you said the word redemption to someone living in Jesus' day, to, to a Jew in ancient Palestine, their thoughts would immediately go to the exodus. When you say redemption, they're going to the, to the exodus in their minds, to the time when all of Israel was living in captivity to Egypt. They were slaves. And God raised up a deliverer and sent Moses to set them free. And, you know, there's a whole long story of that process and how Moses kept going to Pharaoh and the plagues and, and they left and Pharaoh pursued them and finally God delivered them ultimately uh, from Egypt. God redeemed Israel from a life of slavery, from a life of bondage. They couldn't change their circumstances on their own. They weren't powerful enough. They couldn't overcome their circumstances. They were stuck. There was absolutely nothing they could do, and they were trapped. And the son in this story that Jesus tells of this prodigal son, he's trapped. He had made his choices. He, he can't change the past, and he's stuck there. We can't change the past. He couldn't change his circumstances on his own. There was nothing he could do to make that happen. He was embedded in this new life that he had chosen for himself. So he did what he could do. And that is he left his circumstances that were there by his own making. And he went to the one who could restore him. Who had the power to at least give him a sustainable life. Never, you know, even in his wildest dreams, imagining that he could go back and be called a son again. But he just went and said, let me become one of your servants. Let me live as one of them. And he went to the one who could rescue him from a life of slavery to his circumstances. And this is the most incredible thing of this story. And please don't miss this. Even though it was his own choices that landed the prodigal son there, and even though he rejected his father in order to make those dumb choices, and even though he wasted the incredible gift that his father had given him, the father still redeems him. That's the most powerful insight in this entire story, that this was done by his own stupidity. This is done by his own selfishness and pride. He rejected his father. He walked away. He basically stole. I mean, he, you know, by Jewish law, he had it coming to him eventually, but he walked away, carrying away his inheritance, squandered it, wasted it, 
And even though the father had no obligation and really in a practical sense probably shouldn't have restored his son, the father absolutely went above and beyond and restored him to his rightful place. That is what redemption is all about. That the love his father had for him went way beyond his wrong choices. The love that his father had for him overlooked and was willing to forget about, willing to put the past behind them. It was far greater than his selfishness. And even the son initially rejecting his father wouldn't stop him from loving him. Now, I hope as I'm talking about this, and I'm talking about the father in this story, and I'm talking about the son and his choices, I hope there's some light bulbs going on in your minds, and you're starting to sense the parallel here between this son and his father and us and our heavenly father, and the choices that we've made that put us in our bad circumstances, and the rejecting God's love for us, and taking the gifts that he has given us and squandered them, and walking away, and being found in bad circumstances because of our own choices, and we have no right to be able to come back to God and say, would you accept me back? The story of the prodigal son was told by Jesus to illustrate that love, to illustrate the kind of love that God has for you and for me, to show us a picture of what redemption looks like for us, because we all find ourselves in the exact same situation that the prodigal son found himself in. The Pharisees in this story in Luke 15 were, were calling out Jesus here for eating a meal with tax collectors and other sinners. We talked about the parable of the lost sheep. Well, that was in response. There was the lost sheep, there was the lost coin, and the lost son in Luke 15. He tells these three parables to answer the Pharisees' accusations of Jesus going and hanging out with and, and eating a meal with these lost people. And this, this is the, the culmination of these stories, is the story of the prodigal son. And it shows the kind of reckless, uninhibited love that God has for us. Because in our minds, it doesn't make sense. We don't understand that kind of love. We think, what are you doing, God? Why would you welcome him back? Why would this father welcome this son back when he rejected him previously? He wasted everything. He's just going to do it again. But God is willing to pursue us. He's willing to go to great lengths to redeem us, to bring us back. And that's a really important reality that every one of us needs to be aware of for several reasons. Number one, if we're in a good place, we're in right relationship with God, we need to never forget what God has done to get us to this place. If we're once knew God and we rejected that truth and we've been walking away and we've been living our own lives and we've been squandering the gifts that he has given us, we need to remember that God is willing for us to turn around and come back. And if we're in a place of we've never uh, found that relationship, we need to know and we need to learn and we need to be taught of the incredible love that God has for us, that no matter what kind of life we've lived in the past, God wants us to come home because we are trapped. There's nothing you or I can do to make up for the stuff that we've done. We can't change our circumstances on our own. There's nothing we can do to make that happen. It was our own choices that landed us here. We rejected our heavenly father in order to make these dumb choices. We wasted the incredible gift that God has given us. That is the gift of life, the gift of freedom. And every person alive finds themselves in the circumstance of living in slavery and bondage to sin. 
We're slaves to our bad choices. We can't help it. We're slaves because we value the wrong things. And here's, here's what you need to understand about that. When we place high value on something that has no eternal value, we place our eternity at risk. When we place high value on something that has no eternal value, we place our eternity at risk. Because what happens is we end up flipping our priorities in life. We end up, we end up pursuing the wrong things. We end up rejecting those things that matter the most. It can become an idol in our lives and taking the place of God. And in the culture of slavery that existed in New Testament times, you got into that circumstance of slavery because there was a debt to be paid that was beyond your means to pay. And so what you did is, since you couldn't pay off the debt, you entered into this bond-servant relationship with the person you owed the debt to to spend the rest of your life working it off. And sometimes even the rest of your life could not amount uh, to enough to cover it, and so you worked the rest of your life for that person. But a price had to be paid to be set free. You could be purchased out of that slavery relationship by someone paying your debt. Your freedom came at a price. We started off by talking about value and those things that we value in our lives. And, and something's value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. God paid for our freedom with the life of Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. Something's value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. That's true in any area of life. But God paid for your freedom with the life of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself for our freedom. Our value to him is limitless. He values you above everything else. He has restored our past. He has purchased our freedom from sin. He has given us the freedom to come home, to have our past restored. And that is God's part in the redemption process. That's what it looks like. God has given us everything we need to be restored. It's done. The work has been done. When Jesus surrendered his life on the cross, he traded his life for yours. He bought your freedom and he declared it is finished. God had done the work. He had done what he needed to do to purchase your freedom. But you and I have a part to play in that process. And that's what I want to touch on briefly in the time that we have left is to help you understand what your part looks like in that process of redemption. In order to be restored, a few things have to happen. Number one, in the redemption process, the restoration process. Number one, we have to fall. Now this one's easy. <laughs> We've all done it. We don't even have to try. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And, okay, and just in case you missed it there, Everyone has sinned, just in case that isn't clear enough for you uh, or needed a little more direct. Ecclesiastes 7.20, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. No one, not a single person. And this isn't something that you even have to try to do to fall, to fail. We're born losers. We've all inherited the complete inability to control our tendency to sin. The Bible calls that our sinful nature, our flesh. And just in case you think you're some spiritual giant who can beat the odds, you can live your entire life and never sin. None of you probably think that, but just in case. This next verse was written by Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, and this was written by Paul about himself. Romans 7, 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. 
I want to do what is right, but I can't. Guys, hear this. No one is good enough. No one has lived a life that is right enough, that is holy enough, that is perfect enough. Because God's standard for you is not the person sitting next to you. It's not the neighbor that lives across the street. It's not, you know, a really, really holy person that you know. That's not the standard that you need to measure up to, that you need to live up to. The standard that we need to measure up to is God himself. And that standard is pure, it's perfect, it's holy. And not one of us can measure up to that standard. So the first part in that restoration process is we need to fall. God has already done everything he needs to do. And isn't it good to know that one out of the three things that we need to do, we can't help but do it. You're one third of the way there already. You are there. We can't help but blow it. So let's see what the next step is. The second thing is we have to get back up. Number one, we have to fall. Number two, we have to get back up. Falling is easy. Anyone can fall. And, and just like we discussed, everyone will fall. It's getting up that takes the effort, isn't it? I mean, and to get back up, we have to realize that we've fallen. Now, getting up, maybe, you know, physically when you fall may be easier for you depending on your age. I'm finding now that I'm 48 uh, that I make a lot more noises when I get up than I used to and I get made fun of by my children. Uh, you know, they, my old man noises when I get up from a couch or, you know, from, from bed. Um, but we have to realize that we've fallen in order to get up. There has to be that awareness. Now, what do you mean, Jeff? How do we not know that we've fallen? Well, there are some falls that are easy to recognize, right? I mean, you're running, the ground reaches up and grabs hold of your foot and you dive face forward into the ground and you slide three feet across the asphalt the, that one really doesn't take a whole lot of diagnosis. You don't have to figure it out. You know you have fallen at that point, right? But there is another kind of falling uh, that's a little more subtle in our lives. It's, it's the gradual decline. It's the gradual fall. It's the gradual fail. Uh, it's that moment when you go to put on a pair of pants and you realize that the snap won't go closed anymore without sucking in your gut first, Okay. I'm not speaking from personal experience at all there. And you sit there and you ask yourself, how did this happen? How did I get this way? I was in good shape. I was an athlete and I am no longer there. And, and you went a long, long time without realizing that there was a problem until the fastener on your jeans gave you that realization moment. Some of us have had a subtle slide, not into weight gain, but into sin. And it happened slowly, almost too slow to even recognize that it was happening. But if you look at who you once were and who you are now, you know that you need God to restore you again. You need God to bring you back. And, and I want you to know you don't have to wait because God is ready. He always is to restore you. Now, the prodigal son in this story had two incredible moments of realization in his story. The first realization was in the pig pen, right? Okay, when he hit bottom, he realized that he had fallen and he had fallen hard. He thought this was his wake-up call. When he looked at the pig food and, and started to think that was appetizing, he knew that he had hit bottom. He looked around, saw where he was, realized this was not how it was meant to be. And he got up and went home 
expecting to live out his life in servanthood, that he would at least have good living conditions while he lived in slavery to his own father to pay off the debt that he could never pay. But then something incredible happened. That was the first wake-up call. But the prodigal son's true wake-up moment wasn't in the pig pen. It was in his father's arms. That's when he really woke up. That's when he woke up to the truth. It was when he realized that his father still loved him. He had blown it. I mean, he had messed up. He had wasted the gift that his dad had given him. And his dad still wanted him back. His father still welcomed him home. And as the father wrapped his arms around his son and he wept for joy over his son's return, that real wake-up call happened for the prodigal son. Because he realized just how much and how deep his father's love was for him. And I would contend that the greatest realization moment that you and I will ever have is not when we realize how deep we've fallen into sin, but how incredible God's love is that still calls us back from there. When we recognize the depth of God's love for us, and the Bible says we will never be able to truly grasp God's love for us. We will never be able to understand how high and how wide and how deep the Father's love is for us. We can't. We can't wrap our heads around it because we are finite beings and we serve an infinite God whose love for us is equally infinite. And if you've never had that wake-up call in your life, it's time. It's time for you to realize that God isn't waiting for you with judgment God isn't waiting for you to destroy you. God is waiting to show you his love. That's why he's still allowing this condition, this sin condition to exist on the world. God will eradicate sin once and for all someday. And when he does, unfortunately, everyone who is still trapped in sin will be wiped out with it. But God is waiting because he wants us to turn around. He wants us to come back. He wants us to get up. He wants us to realize that we've fallen. He's already redeemed you. All you have to do is respond to God's redemptive call. And you need to realize that nothing you have done is too great. No mistake you've made is too big for God to forgive and for God to still love you. Some of you think it is. Some of you look at your past, you're like, there's no way it could ever happen. But when you say that, saying your sin is too big to forgive is saying that your life is worth more than Jesus. Because how do we determine value? It's what someone is willing to pay for it. God paid the life of his own son, Jesus, to redeem you. And if we think our sin is too great, then we're saying that our life is worth more than Jesus. There's no mistake that's too great. There's no past action that would prevent God from loving you, from restoring you, if you will only ask. Get back up. Recognize that there's a way out because there's one more step that you have to take. We have to fall. We have to get back up. And here's the third step. You have to turn around. You have to turn around. The son didn't come back and casually stroll in, you know, and say, yo, pops, I'm back. Hey, the pig pen was great, but I thought I'd come home and try it out here for a while. No, I want you to listen to the words that he uses to express his contrition, the depth of his, his sorrow and his repentance to his father. I've sinned against you in heaven and I'm not even worthy to be called your son, which is true. He wasn't. 
But God had other plans. God has other plans for us. We're not worthy. God's part is redemption. Our part is repentance. God's part is redemption. Our part is repentance. And those go hand in hand. There is no redemption without repentance. And repentance is worthless if that redemption process was not begun by God. Not just saying we're sorry, but being different on the other side to change the direction of our lives. You've heard me use this quote before. It's one of my favorites. You cannot go north without first turning your back on the south. It's a direction change. It's a moving in the right direction after we've been traveling in the wrong direction. It's getting back on the correct path and moving towards God again. And some people think that this is a gradual process, just like we gradually fell into sin, right? Um, where we, we start to make some questionable decisions and choices and allowing different influences into our lives. And it's that slippery slope that leads us into a life that is not honoring to God. And the circumstances that, that exist in our lives are by our own making. And some people think that getting back and turning around is a gradual process as well. Kind of like turning a, a giant ocean liner with a tugboat, just kind of tapping that front of that, you know, again and again and again, and slowly, slowly, slowly that changes course. You know, I'll make my way back to God eventually. You gradually make the changes, but the biblical language here is very, very different. The word for repentance has nothing to do with gradual. It's a turnaround. It's a pivot. It's an about face. Now, there's still going to be a process of becoming more like Jesus, and we're going to be learning how to follow him. That's called discipleship. You know, learning how to live the right way and beginning that process, that's discipleship. It's a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. That's discipleship. But when we make the decision to follow Jesus, the old life needs to be just that, the old life. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. That means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. That is what God has for every one of you. He's paved the road for your redemption. He's paid the price for your sin. He did it to restore you. He's opened the door and we've all fallen. We all need it. So our task is to get up and turn around. The door is open. God is standing there just like the father was in this story, waiting for us to turn around and come to him. We just have to walk through that door. The son was redeemed so he could live free. Not so he could go back to living in the pig pen. When God sets you free, it's time to live free. Live free from the chains of sin. Live free from a life of slavery. Live life fulfilling the desires and the plans that God has for our lives. That perfect plan that he has for you. Some of you have been living with less than the best for a way too long of a period of time. You've settled for the present that your past has brought you. 
Your past has brought a, a reality into, into being for you. But God doesn't want you to settle for that. God wants to do more than just let you live with your past. He wants to restore you. He wants to restore you. Restoration should never be our last resort. It doesn't have to be. Your wake-up call doesn't have to be when you hit rock bottom. It can be at the realization of God's love for you. And some of you are having that realization moment right now. And take advantage of that opportunity that you're being given today. Let God restore you. You've fallen. I get it. We all have. Get back up, turn around, and pursue God. Let God restore you. And as the prodigal story ends, let the celebration begin. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning as a broken and fallen people who are in need of redemption every day that we're alive. But God, there are some of us who may be hearing this message who they are for the first time having a realization that they need a savior, that they need a redeemer. And God, I pray that as we close this service in prayer, that they would just have that realization moment and God, they would whisper a prayer by themselves right now and just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm not worthy, but I want to come home. I want to be forgiven and I want to live for you. And God, would you just make your love unbelievably real to them in this moment? Let them have that realization moment just like the prodigal son did in the arms of his father once again. God, let there be a celebration in heaven because they've come home. God, I pray for those who are hearing this and they're realizing that they've had that gradual slide into sin. That the circumstances that are life, in their life right now are not what you intended for them to be living with. And God, they, they look at what they used to be like and, and the, the place they used to be in and they're realizing that they have fallen quite significantly. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to get up from where they are, wherever they're at right now, turn around and begin to walk on the right path. Lord, I pray that you would call them back home as well. And God, let them have an altar moment in their heart right now, saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for running away. I'm sorry for the gradual slide. And I'm not gonna wait for a gradual recovery. God, I'm turning around, I'm getting up and I'm following you again. And Lord, I pray that you would restore people today. God, let there be restoration moments all over the place as people in their hearts make a decision to say, I will follow Jesus. And your love, God, will redeem and restore and set people on the right path. God, we are so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for the truth of your word that saves us if we will just turn around. God, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that this week, as we begin to live that out, God, let us bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said, amen.